Sharon said this, and it is true. How many of you enjoyed the day yesterday? Wow. I, that didn't feel very good. So how many of you preferred it to have been snowing? That's right. Very good. All right. See, I knew it. I thought so. Uh, it was a beautiful day yesterday. So my hope and my prayer is that you were able to get out. I was glad it was Saturday and not Sunday because... I know what happens when it gets nice in the wintertime on Sundays. There are a few of you who will be out and about rather than in here. So I'm glad that it's not quite as nice today. But I am especially glad to have you all here with us. This morning, um, we're going to talk about um, divorce. And so, of course, we're also going to talk about marriage. And as I was thinking about that, I just kind of wanted to say one quick thing, which is um, oftentimes the church has been criticized, and I think probably rightly so, uh, for the fact that, um, that churches seem more geared, at least many are, towards married folks and families rather than towards singles. And that there are times when singles can kind of feel left out. And so I was thinking about that because by and large today I'm not going to be talking about singles. I am going to be talking about folks uh, who are married or who have been married. And so I want you to know that I am aware of that. Uh, and I certainly think um, if there are those of you here um, who have felt at times as if we seem to be more concerned about couples or families, I want you to know I think it's a valid criticism. Uh, and so we are continually trying to think about what we can do to make sure that we are being welcoming both to those who are married but also to those who are not. And so uh, if you think at some point during the sermon, well, he's never talking about me, he doesn't care, I do care, um, but I'm not talking about you today, Okay. But I do care, I promise you that. We are continuing our look at the Sermon on the Mount. And so today we're going to be looking at um, the verses 31 through 37 of the fifth chapter of the Gospel of Matthew. And so please hear these words as Jesus continues. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that anyone who divorces his wife except on the ground of unchastity causes her to commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Again, you have heard that it was said to those of ancient times, you shall not swear falsely, but carry out the vows that you have made to the Lord. But I say to you, do not swear at all, either by heaven for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not swear by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let your word be yes, yes, or no, no. Anything more than this comes from the evil one. Sisters and brothers in Christ, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God, and let's pray. God, we come to you this morning in great joy of who you are, knowing that that changes who we are. I pray, God, that you would be with us in these next few minutes as we wrestle with your scripture and what it means for us in our lives today and what it means for this church body. Continue to shape us, God, into a people who are your witness in this world. And may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen and amen. So here we are. We are in our fourth week 
on the Sermon on the Mount, or as I have begun to kind of affectionately call it, uh, Scripture to preach on if you want to make people feel uncomfortable or angry. And, um, and, and so uh, I'm, I'm enjoying it so far. Um, and, um, and this week, surely it continues, because this week we get to talk about uh, divorce. And uh, that's, of course, very exciting in a congregation that is full of people, some of whom have been married for over 50 years, even longer, some of us. Uh, and others of us who have wrestled with and gone through the struggle and the pain of divorce. And it's kind of hard. There's, it'd be difficult to come up with a topic any more volatile and any more personal, quite frankly. And sometimes when you kind of bring it up, you, you get a sense that people are just kind of cracking their knuckles and ready, waiting for you to say something that they disagree with so that they can pounce on you. So I am fully aware of that, which is why... Like any good, smart preacher, I'm going to avoid it for a couple of minutes at least. And start not with the beginning of our passage today, but with the second part of our passage. It seems like something that perhaps we could be in more agreement with about speech and about letting your yes be yes and your no be no. As I was thinking about that, as I was reading through some stuff this week, I was kind of intrigued by, by some who suggested that, uh, that what we should do because of this is that, when you, uh, that we should no longer swear, like if, for instance, not just swearing as we typically think about it, but swearing before you go into a courtroom and when you're about to testify or that we, we shouldn't take oaths so we shouldn't do like things when, when you become a citizen of a country, that, that this is kind of what Jesus is saying, that we should take that very literally. And I thought, well, that's kind of a, an interesting thought, and I thought, well, maybe I could talk about that a little bit, but then I, when I realized that we were already going to be talking about divorce, I said there's really no reason to make people even more angry than they already will be. So we won't go off into that part of the speech part of Jesus's sermon. But what I do want us to think about briefly, because I do think it's at the heart of what Jesus is saying, is the importance of our words. Now, what Jesus is, is trying to tell us here, it seems to me, is that we should never, when we are telling somebody something, need to rely on any kind of collateral. Whether that be the name of God, whether that be heaven, whether that be your own self, that we should not rely on any kind of collateral because people should be able simply to trust what it is that we are saying. It's easy, it seems to me, of course, for us as we've kind of been talking about things like last week about anger and lust, or as we'll talk about soon, divorce, for us to kind of get caught up in those more uh, interesting or exciting uh, parts of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. And yet, this part about the speech, in many ways, of course, is, is the bedrock of what forms good community. Without being able to trust what people are saying, community is worth absolutely nothing and will not stay strong at all. And remember, as I will probably remind you of every day, every Sunday as we go through this, that what Jesus is trying to do is he is trying to form a community. He is trying to form a community that can then go out and be glimpses of God's coming kingdom. And what he realizes, of course, is that nothing will shatter that community and that glimpse of God's kingdom like people not being able to trust what it is that we are saying. 
It's one of the reasons, really, why we oftentimes see these surveys that we've talked about before. Uh, uh, surveys that, that say that, that the reason why the church isn't trusted is because there are too many hypocrites. Now, some of that is real. Some of that is perceived. But the reality clearly is, is that if we aren't people of our words, if they can't trust us with one thing that we say, then they will not trust the coming kingdom that we try to tell them about. That if they can't trust what we are saying to them, that it will be more difficult for them to trust this God whom we keep talking about. And so the reality is, is, as Jesus says, let your yes be yes and your no be no. That when we start talking about being people of grace and love and holiness, that we need to be a people who are actually backing that up. That we can't just talk about love, we must actually live that love out. That we can't just talk about grace, we must actually live that grace out. That we can't just talk about being holy, that we must live that holiness out. Otherwise, everything that we say is going to be called into question. It hinders our witness externally. And I feel fairly fairly convinced that much of our struggle with being a witness to the world around us stems from the fact that people cannot trust what we say because we are not actually living into what we are telling them. And that's why this is critical to the formation of community. But it's important, of course, not just for our witness externally, it is important for who we are internally as well. All of us know communities that have been shattered because of the fact that trust has been broken and what one person has said, he or she has then reneged upon. It shatters community, it shatters family, and of course, it shatters couples which is where we get to our conversation about divorce. And before we kind of dive into that subject, one of the things that's absolutely critical for us to understand is what is happening and what has been happening when it comes to Israel and marriage. Back in the Old Testament, when, uh, when, when books like Deuteronomy were being written and when laws were being formed, apparently one of the things that was happening is that the Israelites, and by the Israelites, what I mean here is the Israelite men, because they were the ones who had all of the power, that they were beginning to simply divorce women willy-nilly. And what would happen then is not only would they divorce them, but they wouldn't give them any kind of proper certification that said, I have been divorced, which meant for the women that they couldn't then be remarried. And when you were a woman at this time and you couldn't be remarried, it meant that you then had no family, very little way at all to be able to support yourself. And so basically then you were destined for a life of poverty, of shame, of destitution, and perhaps even death. And so whenever it is that, that this law was created, it was created out of a desire to help the vulnerable, to be who were the women at that time, to support them so that some man couldn't just simply say, you know what, I don't like what you're wearing today, forget it, and throw you out where you had no sense of hope or support. That you have to give them something, some kind of certification so that they can then go out and be married again and be taken care of. So then fast forward to what Jesus is talking about here. 
And we begin to see that what Jesus is doing is he's beginning to see that there are perhaps too many certificates being thrown about. Too many divorce certificates just going here and there. And men, primarily, who again were just saying, oh, forget it. I, you know, I don't care. I hear it. You know what? This time I'll at least give you a certificate. But go off because of what you're wearing or because of any other reason. And so Jesus is trying in some ways to, to, to care even more for women. To say, no, you can't simply just be rid of her because of the fact that Something less than, as he would say here, less than an affair. Which I think is kind of helpful in understanding. Right? There are always lots of questions that get popped up, right? What about the case of an abuse? What if a woman is being abused? Jesus didn't say it was okay. Does that mean that that she can't really divorce? And you think, well, think about what Jesus is saying. If he is concerned about the vulnerable, and if a woman, let's just say, is being abused and is vulnerable, then it seems to me that Jesus would be fairly understanding of a divorce in that particular case. And when one another began looking at each other, as we talked about last week, as being less than human, then each of you become much more vulnerable. So it's important for us to understand where Jesus is coming from. But that said, there is no question in my mind that what Jesus is absolutely passionately against is divorce. Jesus feels remarkably strong That divorce is absolutely horrible. And that really shouldn't surprise us. Right? If by very definition, divorce is separating and severing a relationship, and if what Jesus is about throughout all of his time on earth, and clearly in the Sermon on the Mount, about forming relationships and forming community, then it should not surprise us that it is aberrant to who Jesus and who Jesus wants his community to be. That Jesus holds marriage in remarkably high esteem. And so one of the things that we have to ask then is, what does that mean for us? Far too often when we've talked about the issue of divorce, what what, what the church has tended to focus on is whether or not you have signed the paper of divorce. Have you you gone to an attorney? Don't do that. Don't, Don't get the divorce. And what we have failed to do is to remember that what Jesus is passionate about when it comes to marriage is good, healthy, strong marriages. And so the question, one of the key questions that we need to be asking is, what are we as a community doing to cultivate healthy, strong marriages? Far, far too often we have just assumed in the church that if you both follow Jesus and if you both go to church, then you should be fine. We should have realized by now that that is clearly not the case. And so we as a church, just like couples as a whole, have to be incredibly intentional and intense and passionate about helping to cultivate strong marriages. And that is not easy to do whenever there are so many things internally and externally that are there trying to fracture marriages. As I was thinking about all those different things that kind of come in and, and attack marriage, I, I got a clip from one of our worship staff of the, uh, from the movie, uh, This is 40. And, and, and in some ways, I thought it did a great job of relaying some of that. So I want you to see the clip, but I, l- let me say this quick caveat. 
I have not watched the whole movie. So I want to be clear. I am not encouraging you, like I did with Goonies, to go see the movie. I've heard some dicey things about it, so I don't want you to think, Pastor said we should go watch this, okay? You guys are totally going to say I said Let's see that clip. The happiest period in people's lives is from age 40 to 60. So this is it. We're in it right now. It's true. Says who? Says a lot of people. Most people say that. We have everything we need right now to be completely happy. We're going to blink and be 90. What? So let's just choose to be happy. Yeah. Yeah. Your eyes are kind of glazing over. No, I'm just I'm processing it all. Some of these I wrote for you. So we have to exercise every day, mm. spend more time alone together, and we have to go to the therapist every week. It's a little pricey. No stressing over tiny things. Yeah, that's good. You should do that. Mm-hmm. We have mm-hmm. to get more involved in school, yeah. have more patience with the kids, and we need to work on our anger. I, yeah, I think it'd be good if you could take care of your anger. No, I said both of us. That's what I said, our anger. Okay. Um, no more smoking. Yeah, you gotta get, you gotta cut that out. I don't want to make this about a fight. I want to just yeah. be positive. I, sorry. Okay, and then no more holding on to resentments. We have to just let that go. So if you're saying that if we're arguing and I apologize, you'll let it go and not throw it back in my face later? Well, I don't do that, but I will continue not to do that. On what'd you write? All of that. That's plenty. That's a lot. And you're going to eat better? Oh, yeah, yeah. I've been doing a decent job. I mean, but I don't think there's anything wrong with having some fries every now and again. And then I'll smoke that day. That's not the same thing. It is the same thing. I like fries. And the other thing is your dad's stuff, the Mm -hmm. not letting him, you know, guilt trip you all the time because that puts a lot of pressure on you and stress and then the whole family feels it and he is a grown man and it's not our responsibility. And you're not giving him money anymore, right? No, no, I haven't been giving him money. I haven't done that for years, I told you. Can you please put that down? Now, one of the things I love about that clip is in a, in a, in a two-minute and eight-second clip, I think it, it reveals so many things that cause strife and distress amongst married couples, right? I mean, you have one for whom, her in this case, often cases, for whom this is really a priority, right? This is, I want to talk about this, let's do this. And we have the guy in this particular situation who seems to want to just think, it'll just kind of take care of itself, Right? Both of them are remarkably good at seeing what the other one is not doing well and not nearly as good at figuring out what he or she self, themselves are very good or not good at. You have the issue of money that came up a couple of times. You have the issue of in-laws, of course, that came up. You've got the, you got the struggles we talked about last week of resentment and, and the way that resentment and anger can kind of take over. All of those things, it seems to me, reveal in pretty remarkable and clear ways how easily our marriages can unravel. And so the question then is, what are we going to do about it? What can we as a church do to help cultivate People who are able, couples who are able to wrestle with that. So that we aren't just simply against divorce, but so that we are about marriage. 
And in my kind of decade or so of being a pastor, I've dealt with a fair amount of couples who are struggling. One of the greatest struggles, it seems to me, is the fact of how frequently couples do not allow one another to be a priority. Right? I was reading something this week that talked about how amazing, how remarkable it is that silly things like television or, or, or other things like family or perhaps even more often children or work, how easily those things become the priority over the spouse. And the problem, of course, is, is that it's one of those things that you don't even see at first. Right? In fact, most times you don't even realize that that's the case until sometimes the marriage is already pretty much unraveled until the, the children go off to school and you look at one another and you think, well, who are you? Right? Or until you've reached the pinnacle of your job and you think, well, this doesn't feel nearly as great as I thought it was going to. And, and, and now there's nothing going on here between you and, and me. And, and, and one of the things that we have to do, it seems to me, is to ask ourselves, what, our, what are our priorities? You see, because all of us have the time it's just a question of whether or not it's a priority. Whenever people say to me, I'm sorry, I just don't have time, I know what they're really saying, and it's fine, but I know what they're really saying, which is that it is not a, because what are priorities are the things that get done. And so if you have time to drive your kids around and to go to sporting events for 15 hours a week, you have time to sit across the table from your wife for two hours uninterrupted. If it's a priority. One of the great things it seems to me that ZPC has, and I've mentioned this before, is a great banquet. One of the great things about the great banquet is the fact that, that, that it helps you to kind of do a health check as to what your priorities are. I'm sure that great banquet is great when you go through it in your 50s, 60s, and 70s. But what I want you to know is I think it's even more critical for you to go through it in your 20s, 30s, or 40s when you are caught up and running to and fro and doing this and that and thinking about climbing the corporate ladder and establishing your establishing yourself and hanging out with the kids, all those things that the Great Banquet offers you three or four days to simply stop for a health check and to say, what are my priorities? And so we have to begin to ask ourselves, how can we help cultivate a place that says, what are your priorities? Not only that, but we can be a place that helps to form community. I think far too often we fail to understand the importance of having community surrounding married couples. Right? Sometimes we simply think that things that we do, like having donuts in the gathering space, or having the, 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 the brunch that we'll be having after worship, or, or doing the all-church retreat, that those things are nice. They're a great extra. And I'm here to tell you, I take that very personally. Because I think it is essential to who we are. Megan and I have been married not quite 10 years, and we have, uh, we've lived in four different places. And in all those places, we've had churches. So it's not just whether or not you go to church, because we have experienced very different churches and community within those churches. And I, I'm here to tell you that it, that it matters, that I am a better husband when I have friends to play basketball with, when I have friends to, to argue over about with sports or with faith or whatever it might be, I'm a better husband when I have that. 
That Megan is a better wife, quite frankly, when she has friends to go out with and to laugh with and to shop with. Well, that may not be quite as good for our marriage, but she enjoys that more. When she has that. We are better together when we have groups of friends that we can go out with, other couples' friends who have children who are similar to our age so that we can, we can share the excitement and the challenge and we can really address real issues. What does it mean to raise this kid in a, in, in a way where he or she continues to reflect Christ more and more? And, and what does that look like? These things are, are, are essential for good, healthy marriages. And if we want to be against divorce, and I think we should be, then we have to make sure that we are investing in our couples. Now, there are a lot of other things that I think we could do, but quite frankly, I just don't have the time to talk about. Right? There are other things. A parenting workshop that we're doing in March, I think it's huge, because goodness knows parenting can cause such division in couples. Right? The fact that we have multi-generations here, I wish more of our young couples, we need to figure out how to do this, would hang out with some of our older couples or even our widows or widowers who have great experience. Some of them had wonderful marriages and some of them had marriages that struggled a lot. What might we learn from them? And of course, just the simple fact of coming in here to worship every Sunday. Because it is always a reminder, or at least it should be, that we are not the center of the universe. That God is at the center. That we are called to love God and to love neighbor. Right, so many of the marriages that I see struggle, they end up being, just as we saw here, wrapped up around what we, would, what we want and what we see wrong with the other person. And that simple practice of remembering, love God, love neighbor, can strengthen marriage, it seems to be, in remarkable ways. It is not surprising to me that God is, does not like divorce. And I think Jesus feels strongly about it. It isn't surprising because anyone who's gone through a divorce knows that there are people within a certain radius, all of them are touched. And oftentimes in remarkably difficult and harmful ways. And yet, just as strongly as I am convinced that God does not want divorce for us, I am equally strongly convinced that we serve a God of love and grace and mercy. One of the greatest tragedies that we do with scripture passages like this is if you look at it like a puzzle, we take, it out of the, we take a piece out of the puzzle and we look at it and we say, okay, this is exactly what I think, and we forget that it's a part of a larger puzzle. Remember what we've said throughout the Sermon on the Mount, that whenever you read through it, as we keep reading through Jesus' teaching, that it keeps driving us back to where? The first beatitude. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who understand that they struggle. Blessed are those who understand that they're not always going to get this right. Not only that, but as you continue to read in Scripture, we can't help but begin to see how God continually forgives, continually loves, continues to give grace, and there's no reason for us to think that divorce is any different than that. One of the difficult things about divorce, as someone pointed out this week, is how public it is. 
Lots of other things that we struggle with or that we fall short in, we can hide. Divorce is not one of those. Anyone who has undergone divorce, they've heard the whispers. I haven't, I haven't, seen, I haven't seen a wedding ring on her finger lately. You know, I, 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 I haven't seen the car in that, I haven't seen his car in the driveway in quite some time. Almost all children of divorce, at least this is what I remember, can remember the first or second time when in public your mom doesn't say my husband anymore. She says his father. Most couples who go through divorce, they, they've experienced the reality of, uh, of friends who have to decide, it seems, are we going to be with him or are we going to be with her? And others who just kind of shrink away because they don't know what to say. The tragedy of divorce is that not only oftentimes is it a broken relationship between a husband and wife, but it is a broken relationship that continues through the children and through friends and through a whole community even. And yet what I am convinced of, is that the same Jesus who abhors divorce is the one who was also sitting there with the divorced husband and with the divorced wife and is whispering in their ear if they will but listen, blessed are the poor in spirit. What we in the church are not very good at Is being able to both see that Jesus is there with the marriage and is fighting for the marriage and wants us to fight for that marriage and that Jesus is here with grace and love and mercy for those who have been a part of a broken relationship. We want to take sides. But I don't think it is belittling marriage at all to then say that God has grace for those who have gone through divorce. Just like I don't think it's belittling grace to stand over here and say, we think God wants you to be married. The question is, can we stand with both? And if we can, might we not be reflecting the holiness and the grace of God's kingdom. Sisters and brothers in Christ, this is not an easy journey. It is a real journey with pain and with love, with grace, with hope, but with brokenness and pain. My hope and my prayer is that we can be with those who are struggling in their marriages and help them. Just as we can be with those who have suffered the brokenness of divorce. And that we can be there. Because that's where Jesus is. May that be our prayer and our hope. Amen.